my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Every family has an origin story. One passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast, will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances, whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death. We all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys. Together, we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors, and leaders of the world's most iconic brands. We're so excited that today's episode is sponsored by Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS that accelerates the growth of female-founded companies by increasing their investment readiness and connecting them to the resources and networks they need to build and grow their businesses. The Riveter has been a part of Project Entrepreneur in many different ways, and it is an incredible program. In fact, since its launch in 2015, Project Entrepreneur has supported more than 1,800 female founders who've gone on to raise nearly $55 million in funding. 
Please stick around to the end of the podcast and meet one of the founders of Project Entrepreneur, Jamie Sears, head of UBS Community Affairs and Corporate Responsibility. Jamie's story is incredible and you won't want to miss it. And now we have speaker and author Lovey Ajayi Jones. She is here to celebrate her newest book, Professional Troublemaker, The Fear Fighter Manual. Lovey, you grew up in Nigeria. What was your childhood like? My childhood was normal, you know, grew up in a household, a loving household in Nigeria with siblings. Yeah, I mean, it was fine. I actually don't even know how to answer that question. <laughs> what did you worry about as a kid? What were you insecure about? Damn, that's a good question. Hmm. I don't remember being insecure about much. What was the contrast like when you got to America and started your life here with your family? Do you remember that as being a seismic event? Yeah, I mean, moving from one continent to another, a warm place to a cold place, a place where everybody was black, and then here only a a little bit were black. It was absolutely a major culture shift and a momentous change. My accent was different for the first time. My name was different for the first time. It was definitely the first time that I was the new girl anywhere. So yeah, that was absolutely a huge shift. How did you adapt to being the new girl? I listened to the other kids talk and I lost most of my accent in a few years. I I didn't go by my first name, which is Ifeolua. Now it was Lavette. Um, But I still brought my jollof rice to school. I still spoke Yoruba most of the time at home. But yeah, I think kids are very adaptable. So I, I pretty much adapted pretty easily, got friends and kind of blended in after a bit. And what was your relationship with your siblings like then compared to how it is today? Mm, I mean, my my relationship with my siblings hasn't much changed over the years. We've always been close. So that hasn't been a big shift or anything like that. What do they do? I mean, you're so in the public eye. Are they in the public eye? No, not at all. My family is pretty private. They are definitely not public in any way. And... They're regular people. I'm a regular person, but they're definitely not visible. What do they think about you being in the public eye? My family is really supportive. They're vocal about, you know, loving what I do. They're really proud. Tell us about your evolution to becoming a blogger. Yeah. So when I started college in 2002, my major was actually psychology pre-med because I thought I'd be a doctor. You know, that was the (laughs) dream. That was the thing that I wanted to do. And I started school with that intention. And then I took chemistry 101 and that dead the dream because I ended up getting a D (laughs) and it was the first D of my academic career. It was kind of shocking my system because I was definitely not used to failing and I considered a D failing. I was not used to not getting the the grade I expected. And I think though, I think it was a a moment of realization because I was like, yo, you actually tried and you failed it. So you probably don't want to be a doctor. And actually really did realize in that moment that I did not want to be a doctor, that it had been a dream that was not necessarily mine, was kind of like passed to me. And I dropped it. I instantly dropped the pre-med. Who was it passed to you from? Family, friends. I mean, I'm Nigerian. So being a Nigerian, they, you know, doctor, lawyer, 
um, accountants are pretty much things that you're encouraged to do. So I was like, oh, I'll pick doctor. But that semester, I actually started blogging. So yeah, as one dream was dying, another was being birthed. And then, so I had my blog all through college. After I graduated, I deleted my college blog and I started awesomelylovey.com to talk less about myself and more about the world as I see it. And I just never stopped. What blogs did you read before you started your own? None. So how did you know about blogging? My friends were like, we're going to start blogging. And I was like, okay. Like back then, Zanga and Life Journal were big, apparently. I don't remember reading any blogs that like stood out. But I mean, you think about the micro blogging that was happening on like Black Planet and stuff like that. But like, I, had, I wasn't like deep into the blogosphere. I was just like, okay, my friends want to start this online journal. Let's do it. And that's what happened. So tell us how you went from becoming a blogger in college, right? Because a lot of people say, oh my gosh, I want to be a best-selling author, but but do I just start with a blog and then it just happens? I mean, how did it happen to you? So I started blogging in 2003, got the new blog in 2006. I kept on blogging and more and more people just started seeing my blog and finding it and saying, you know, it was beneficial to them in some way or my words had some type of impact on them. I got laid off my full-time job in 2010, April 2010. And that's the last full-time job I had where I was, wasn't working for myself. Like, it was basically the chance for me to take this blogging thing seriously. I was doing um, social media consulting for small businesses and other bloggers when I got laid off my job, but I would still be blogging. I wasn't creating ads. I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to do this thing and this thing will come from it. It just was like people will read my site and share it with somebody that they know. And then that person shares it and it grew from there. And I think the the writing, I've always been a marketer, but the writing kept on coming right next to it. And yeah. And then I think in 2012, I got credentialed to do press coverage at the Academy Awards. From there, a lot of doors opened. I started getting columns and to write recaps, my scandal recaps got big. People will find me for one thing and stay for something else. And it was it's just like this snowball effect ultimately. Like I was not necessarily trying to have a particular thing happen because I was writing. I think I was purely writing because I loved it. I was writing because it felt natural. Like it felt like if I didn't write, I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. I just kept getting rewarded uh, for it. I got my first book deal in 2015 for I'm Judging You, the Do Better Manual. I wrote that book in five months that year. The book came out September 13, uh, 2016. And more magic started happening because the book hit the times list at number five. Did you ever worry about money and, and supporting yourself? you know, after you were laid off? Yeah, I, I definitely did. I think I um, I was like, how am I going to make money, you know, doing what I'm doing? But I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm a hustler. I, that's where the small business consulting came in. I was like, I will, you know, help other bloggers do what I've already done for myself in terms of, because I, I built my own blog at that point. My marketing and communications background gave me the, very specific experience that I could use to help other people. I definitely hustled. 
Did you hustle to become a New York Times bestseller? I mean, how much of that was right place, right time versus the blood, sweat, and tears you put into it? Most of it was blood, sweat, and tears. I don't think any of it was by accident. You know, I absolutely put and empowered book one and become a New York Times bestseller. I called in all my friends. Um, I made sure that they, when they said like, how can we help? Let us know. I actually let them know. Um, I powered that. You know, I made sure that my the resources that I had available to me that I used them. Because I think a lot of times we won't use it. We won't use it. We'll just say, you know, I, I got it. I'll make it work. And I'm like, no, no. For this, I knew how important it was for this book to succeed. So I was like, whatever qualms I have about asking for help, I'm going to make sure I ask for help. And that's what I did. You bring up a great point. I don't think a lot of people understand what it means to ask for help, right? Because they're not exactly specific about how someone can help them. So what were the specific instructions or or requests that you made of the people in your network to get the book to be so wildly popular? One thing I was like, share it with the people you know. That's that's an easy one. But I also, you know, depend on who it was. If they were at a corporate level, I'd say, hey, you know, I'd love to come in and do a talk. Or if they had a particular connection that's impressed, hey, I'd love to do an interview. I think I, I got really specific with how people could be helpful to me based on what they were already in, like the realm that they were already in. I wasn't asking people to kind of do something that wasn't natural to them. So all they had to do was say yes. They had very few reasons to say no. And I think some people got to share. Some people got to like make a phone call to give me access to something. I basically used my network because they already also trusted my work and they knew it was good. So they knew they were vouching for something good. And now for a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So tell us about the time between book one and now? The evolution. I think I've grown as a writer, as a person, as a thinker. I've gotten to do a TED Talk in there. I wanted to write when I felt like I had something to say. And for book two, I got clear about it after I did my TED Talk. I was asked to do my TED Talk six or nine months after book one came out. And I was really busy at that point. And I turned it down because I was like, I'm not going to have time to focus on a TED Talk as I had like 40, 45 speaking engagements that year. So I said no. And because I was also kind of was, I think I realized that I was afraid of bombing. Three weeks before TED, I realized that I actually don't have to be at the 3% conference until November 2nd. And I was like, oh, I can go to TED for one day, the first day. So I hit him up and said, I'd love to get a pass to TED. And Pat Mitchell was like, well, if you can come, we want you to speak. And I remember I was about to send them a, an email. I was about to send Pat an email saying, oh my gosh, thank you for the vote of confidence, but that's going to be a no because that's crazy. That's three weeks away. I'll have to come with a whole new talk. I don't think that's even possible. And I was about to send the email and press send, but I called my friend Unique and I was like, okay, check this out. This is kind of crazy. Ted wants me to speak there. I don't think I can do it. Like everybody else has already gotten all this practice. They've already gotten, you know, their talks figured out for months. They've already gotten coached for months. And Unique said to me, everybody ain't you. 
She was like, your coaching has been the fact that you've been on the stage every two days. The fact that you've been speaking for, at that point, seven years. She was like, everybody's not you. So I need you to get off my phone and go write this talk. And I was like, well, okay. And I deleted the email to Pat. And I wrote my talk, not that night, I wrote that talk in an Uber on the way to another city that I was going to because Ted wanted my script. When I sent him the script, they replied back a couple of hours later, like, we love it, only a couple of edits, which was like, what? So I ended up doing this TED talk and with this brand new talk that I created. And it was like an out-of-body experience because I got on that stage and I gave the talk like I'd been doing it a thousand times. Like, there's so many opportunities for me to bow out, but I wasn't allowed to bow out from my friend, from Pat Mitchell, who was a curator of TED Women. And but I was just like, what happens? Like, how many times in our lives have we been these people? Like, how many times have we actually let fear stop us from doing what was necessary? So I felt convicted to write this book about it because I'm like, my journey is about the multiple times when I had been afraid, but I did it anyways. And it affirmed to me the thing that I'd already known, which is like, when I do the things that scare me, I win. I, we, I think we both have a bunch of follow-up questions to this because it's so interesting. But I want to go back to the very beginning. And you'd said yes to 45 speaking engagements that year, but not the TED Talk. And you know, you've talked a lot about fear, but is that why you said no? Like, why was it different to give the TED Talk in your mind than to give these other 45 speaking engagements? Because TED is TED. TED is a huge stage. It's a career changer. It's massive. Like, people who do TED official talks that go well, like, TED is one of the best things you can do for your career as a speaker. You know, and if you bomb on a TED stage, what does that mean for your speaking career? So, Lovey, there's another person or another name besides Ted that played a huge role in this, and that's Unique. Mm-hmm. Who is she? Unique is one of my really good friends. She is a cultural architect. She's also the creator of a game called Culture Tags. She's the closest thing I have to a coworker. We call each other with ideas every day. Like, we talk about life and work. And what she did was she loaned me courage, you know, in a moment when I didn't have any for myself, or I was doubting myself. And she was like, "Mm, no. I love that phrase. She loaned me courage. That's a great way to describe it. And obviously it led to the Fear Fighter Manual, your new book. Absolutely. Absolutely. It It was an amazing moment of friendship, of people believing in you, even when you don't necessarily believe in yourself. Yeah. Who else is on your personal board of advisors? I have a crew of people, Bozma St. John, Justina Mokwa. I'm surrounded by people who are constantly giving me permission to be bigger. Without giving away too much of the book, because everyone needs to read it, uh, you mentioned when talking about overcoming that fear and getting on the TED stage that you've done that in so many other instances too. Like, What is another time where you could have let fear stop you, but you got past it? When I spoke up about uh, the Next Web, which is a conference in Europe, and how they wanted to pay me in exposure, um, it was definitely a moment where I realized that I was being asked to be who I said I was in in public, also in private. And speaking up about it uh, was important because 
I think systems do definitely count on our silence for for to cheat us. And in that time, I was like, well, if I don't speak up, then who am I expecting to speak up? Like, is it the person who just started last week? Is it the person who has never been paid their fee? And I felt convicted to speak up because whatever loss that I might face, I'd still be okay. So yeah, that thing that that was definitely another time where I was like, okay, I know I could face some real financial loss, but I think the when we're asked to put our power and privilege on the line, yeah, those are usually the moments when we're afraid of losing something. You know, those are usually the moments when we wonder whether we are courageous enough, but I always think courage is a decision. So I made that decision. I think that year was my most profitable up until that point. I had more speaking engagements than I could count and I had more inquiries than I could count. So it also affirmed to me that like we're often creating worst case scenarios in our heads and opting out of what could possibly be the best case scenario. How did you meet your husband? We met at a day party. I pulled his beard. <laughs> what? Tell wait, us about wait. that moment. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was it was the year of it was one of my years of fear fighting. It was when I turned 30 and that year I said I was going to do some things that was unorthodox to me. Like I was going to do some things that I was I would typically not do. And I went to this party, saw this cute guy walking across from me and I pulled his beard, which surprised even me. And then that's how we met. <laughs> what did what he was say? his reaction? <laughs> he was like, did you just pull my face? And I was like, I did. He was like, okay, <laughs> I like it. You are very strong. How would you have reacted if he had pulled your hair as a way of saying hello at the party? I would have been pissed. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, I would have been pissed. So is that how your relationship goes? The same rules don't apply to each of you? Not necessarily. <laughs> Not necessarily. But in that moment, again, like, had he been pissed, I would have understood. So it, it takes, I mean, we talk a lot about this on our show about women and money and confidence and relationships. It takes a very confident partner to be in a, in a great relationship with someone like you. Talk to us about that dynamic. Well, I mean, my relationship is one I, t- I actually don't even talk about on, on, on online and just in general, because for me, it's my sacred space. And it is something that I hold dear as I live in this really public world and public everything. So I actually typically don't even talk about my relationship with my husband and my partner because I'm like, it's the part that I actually don't want people to have access to. So we talked about, you know, I, we started the interview by asking what you were insecure about as a child. And you spend a lot of time talking about fear fighting now. Are there any things that you're still, that you're insecure about today? Mm, Not that much. I think I've, I don't spend a lot of time questioning myself. I actually don't, I try not to spend a lot of time doubting myself. Um, So no, no. I think I'm pretty much, I kind of like, yeah, I think I spend more time just kind of being like, okay, here's what I love to do. How can I get better at that thing? But I don't, I wouldn't necessarily call it insecurity because I'm not constantly like, I got to get better. I'm not enough at this thing. 
So yeah, no. How do you organize your days? You have so much going on, but I would imagine no day is the same. So do you create a routine for yourself? The only routine I have is that I take lunch from 1230 to 1.30 every day. That is the only routine that I stick to. I go to bed at different times. Some days it'll be early, depending if I'm tired. Some days it's late if I'm watching something. Um, I don't have any real routines, but I do work for a lot of my days. Um, I try to be done and off the computer by like six, but otherwise my days always look different. Do you work in your home? Yeah. Yeah, I work for myself. And I mean, after COVID, we all definitely have to shut down. Would you say that you have reached all of your goals or do you keep making new goals? I don't think I create big goals necessarily. Like I'll I'll usually write a list of things that I want to get done that year. But it's actually a list that I forget once I write it. And then I revisit it at the beginning of the next year. And I'm always like, oh, snap, forgot I wrote this thing. And I think for me, it's also kind of a way to take the pressure off. I also think I've spent a lot of time kind of trusting the universe to take me where it needs to take me. What I need to keep doing is doing what I feel like I love to do. Writing, um, marketing, storytelling, loaning people power. And now for a quick break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. 
because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men how this beguiling woman in her 50s she looked like a million bucks with zero qualifications she had a harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents she's got all of these maseratis and bentleys all in the driveway is it like a mansion yes it's a mansion that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich man because <laughs> she is on the prowl listen to queen of the con season five the athlete whisperer on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Amy, do you want to go to the lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. Lovey, what are you reading right now? Nothing. I'm in the middle of a launch. I'm actually reading nothing right now. <laughs> What's your favorite book that's not your own? Toni Morrison's Sula. Who leaves you starstruck? This is a good question because when I think of starstruck, I think about like who will I meet, who I, who I start stumbling over my words and can't say anything. And my answer is nobody because I've met those people and I didn't stumble over my words. So like... Maybe five years ago, I would have said Oprah and Michelle Obama, but I met them. I mean, they're amazing women, but I approach them like regular people. What's your morning routine? Brush my teeth, get in the shower, get dressed, and then I sit down on my computer. Are you watching any TV shows right now? No. The last show that I did watch, though, was Your Honor. Where is the first place you'll go when you can travel again? Somewhere nice and beachy. Like, I need... Sand, water, and sunlight. A lot of it. If you had a billion dollars, what would be the cause you would want to give some of your money to? Mm, probably a racial justice organization that is working on policy and grassroots stuff. So I would probably want to spread that money amongst like 20 to 30 organizations that are all doing work that are interlocked. All right. Well, Lou is coming for the the final question. He's been listening to this interview. Hi, lovey. Hi, Lou. I'm a little starstruck, I got to admit. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to be straight up. One of the talks you did, it was uh, it was the grind before the glow, you know, and I was and I was thinking about me like because I'm a recovering drug addict and I was like, my my grind was bad, you know, but my glow is like so much better. Like my life is yes. so much better, you know. Based yes. off of the decisions that I mean, so I'm like, I did actually apply some of these things unconsciously, you know? So my, my question to you is, in your grime, what did that really look like? I mean, it looked like hours behind a computer screen. It looked like 
writing and taking on opportunities and creating my own opportunities, writing for hours every day. Um, there was a point where I was writing scandal recaps and those recaps used to be 3,500 words. So like every scandal episode, every Thursday, I would spend three hours writing this epic recap where like, if you missed the show, but you read my recap, you missed nothing. So the grind looked like the unglamorous moments of staying up until 3 a.m. to finish this recap and spending my own money to go to conferences and just putting in the work that nobody saw, the pitching myself. Did I even pitch myself? I just kept writing. I just wrote a lot and just created content a lot. So that for me was the grind. And I didn't even have a team at that point. I didn't even have an assistant at that point. So I'm answering emails. I am my own CEO, COO, assistant, accountant. I'm my own social media manager, content specialist. So I'm running a whole company, but I didn't realize it. I just thought it was just me behind a computer screen doing what I had to do. So that's what the grind looked like. Negotiating stuff for myself. It was a lot, but I think it was necessary because it prepared me for this moment. Sam, I have to say that my absolute favorite part of our conversation with Lovey was her story about her friend that really encouraged her to say yes to the TED Talk when, she, when Lovey was so busy, had so much else going on. Uh, it's easy to say no sometimes when we're busy, when something's on the other side of the country, but we often need to realize that these things can be transformative moments in our career. I think everyone needs a friend like that. We have played that role in each other's lives many times, even just recently. And I think that we all need that tribe of really positive people around us being like, you go for that. You got to do this. And I love that story. Now it's time to turn our attention to project entrepreneurs, Jamie Sears. Jamie, we are so excited to talk to you today. So we understand that you read Lovey's book and it's really been resonating with you. Can you tell us what your favorite parts are? Yes, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Um, and I love the book and I will um, own that I am a professional troublemaker. <laughs> um, I think there are two things that really resonated with me. One was doing things that are scary, acknowledging how scary things are and just doing them anyways, like you know, being a part of a podcast for me. <laughs> um, I think the idea of also really knowing who you are and how that can ground and sustain you was something I've been thinking a lot about that, um, just about identity and, you know, the impact of all of that. Um, I will say that, like, for me, I am South Korean. I, you know, I grew up in, in an orphanage and was adopted as an older child, you know, into a, a family in Western Pennsylvania. And, you know, fast forward, I've spent most of my adult life in the New York City area, working in social impact um, on advancing equity for women and for communities of color. And I've been doing that for a while. Can you share with us what that period was like? Do you remember being adopted? I spent most of my years until I was six years old in, in orphanages and um, in like foster families in, in South Korea, in Seoul. And, um, you know, was fortunate because I was six years old when I was adopted. Um, but the environment that I was adopted into, it was, you know, it's a blue collar, rural town. Um, I was very different in my hometown. And, um, but these are like, these life experiences have 
shaped a lot of who I am. And I think it wasn't until I was an adult and honestly had so much time to think across 2020 <laughs> about how all these experiences have made me who I am and um, really has just given me a lot of strength to draw on. Um, I think a lot of the reason why it's even on my mind is because in, in reading the book is I think spending a lot of your life sort of feeling like an outsider, it can feel like, um, like it's not a strength. But I think what I've realized is, is that it really is. Um, it has helped me a lot in terms of understanding others. You know, I wouldn't change anything, but it is, you know, it's a very particular um, set of experiences I feel like that have formed my identity. And now I'm, you know, I'm grown up. I have a son, a biracial child, and there's all kinds of things going on in the world that, you know, I think has me thinking lots about, you know, identity and how you draw strength from, from really knowing who you are. How, how did the Pennsylvania family even find you in South Korea? You know, in the 80s, there was actually a lot of adoptions from South Korea. It was actually one of the largest um, exporters of children back then, um, as, as weird as that sounds. So yeah, it was um, a lot of people came through one of two places, either Holt International, which is based in um, Minnesota, which is why you meet so many Korean adoptees from the Midwest, <laughs> and then um, Catholic Social Services, which is actually how my family, uh, how I connected to my family. And um, my parents, you know, after I was adopted two years later, we actually adopted three more girls from um, the same, you know, orphanage where I grew up. And, um, and so I'm lucky because they're like my best friends. In talking about your childhood and the career that you've built, you do really hard things. You take on really big challenges. And as a founder, I have watched you and UBS support other founders in this really remarkable way. What have you what have you learned from working with founders like me and like Sam about fighting fear? Female founders that I've gotten to know have been literally my greatest source of inspiration. You know, on the entrepreneur front, I do think that women who start and grow companies are truly badasses um, because, you know, women are not only, you know, starting out companies less capitalized, um, black and Latinx women, especially so because of the racial wealth gap. Um, but there's, you know, continues to be gaps in access to networks and resources and capital to be able to really build and, and scale a company the way that it has the potential to. So, you know, I know it's not, um, it's not for the faint of heart. I've seen it up close um, and have just been inspired by how women continue to be, um, you know, doing all of this, being, you know, the fastest growing group of founders among the most productive of our time, um, outperforming all male founded teams as research has shown. So I just really feel like if anyone can, can do this, it's women. What opportunities are you seeing for female founders as we transition out of the pandemic? There's a lot of reasons to be optimistic, but I will say, I mean, we've all seen that the pandemic has not been kind to women on a lot of levels. And when I look at venture capital in 2020, the venture capital has, has continued to grow, but startup investment into female founded companies, you know, was down. 
at an ecosystem level, I think there's just a breadth of resources and community out there for founders. It's also been amazing to see all of these new funds that are being raised in the past few years, um, including 2020, that focus specifically on investing in underrepresented founders, women and founders of color. And I think this is a real recognition of the talent that exists, but is you know undervalued and underinvested in. And therefore, for investors, there's alpha there. So um, we will, at Project Entrepreneur, definitely continue to offer programming to get founders investment ready and build intentional networks and community to help them really grow and thrive. Seeing hybrid accelerator and sort of startup studio programs that blend in-person and virtual is, is actually more flexible and better for women. What industries do you think we should be looking out for? It does seem like the um, industries connected to, you know, some of the ways that we work are going to be things to watch out for. Um, what I mean by that is obviously there will likely be, you know, maybe more remote working and more virtual events and less travel and ways that people want to continue to connect, but might not be the way that, you know, we did um, in 2019. So things I think related to what we learned um, through the pandemic, I think, are the sort of immediate areas of opportunity that I think investors are actually looking to. What has this pandemic taught you about yourself and how is it going to change the way you work moving forward? I feel like this really proved to me that, you know, I'm probably more resilient um, and adaptable than I thought I was. Um, I think we all just get really used to things being a certain way. Things that we thought we needed to do um, in terms of, for example, one of the things for me was traveling a lot for work. And a lot of people have been talking about that because, you know, it took us away from being at home and if we have family and stuff like that. So I think that that has changed me forever because I have, um, you know, I've just so enjoyed being at home more and spending the kind of time that we likely will never have. I know. Isn't that amazing? Amy and I talk about it all the time that we used to be on the road so often. And now I don't think we'll ever go back to that lifestyle the way it was because you realize how much can get done without being in person. Thank you so much for being part of this. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We would so appreciate if you would leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast. What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co and Sam's company, Park Place Payments, at parkplacepayments.com. Thanks to our producer and editor, Laurel Moglin, our podcast associate, Phoebe Cranefuss, and our male perspective, Lou Burns. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. 
From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances, whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death. We all want to know what happened next. To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.